I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Basil Hamwe. Basil has a fascinating career journey, having been in the private equity and banking industry, along with being a CEO of startups and a board member for 19 different companies. He spent 20 years as a senior staff member at the World Bank, and was also a CEO and board member for over 12 years in various startups and financial institutions. Basel is currently the president of Bazzi Ventures, an investment and consulting company operating in the United States, MENA, West and South Asia. Bazzi Ventures invests in the asset-backed lending and fintech space and also provides consulting, executive coaching, and board and family governance. Basel is also the chairman of Global Tech, a technology investment and development group of companies operating in MENA, India, and the United States. From 2005 to 2014, Basel was a founder and CEO of Bank Audi Syria, which became the country's largest private lender. He is also a founding member of the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, Levant Chapter, and the Syrian American Business Council. He was also a global board member for YPO from 2018 to 2022. Basel holds an MBA in international finance and a business of arts degree in business computer information systems and organizational management from the University of North Texas. And he's also a graduate of the Harvard Business School President's Program. Furthermore, he just started an executive leadership program at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. He has 32 years of experience in the financial markets and has been a contributor to publications like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and the New York Times. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. I know you're gonna love it, so let's dive right in. Well, Basel, my friend, I tell you what, it is so good seeing you, and I am so honored that you would take time out of your busy schedule to be on the pod. Uh, wh where are you calling in from this morning? So I'm in New York City, uh, and I gotta tell you, I'm the one who really feels honored. Um, over the course of the last uh, eight months or so, I've been listening to your podcast. And, you know, Bob, it, it's not only bringing a lot of wonderful memories from our days of yore, so mm -hmm. to speak, but also the learnings that I'm getting from it are wonderful. And besides, uh, the people that you've been interviewing are such incredible role models. I'm, I'm really, I feel kind of uh, honored and humbled to, to be counted amongst them. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be here and, and it's fabulous to talk to you. Well, uh, the honor is mine. I tell you what, like I have so enjoyed uh, the, all the various um, people that I've been able to interview over these, you know, many months. And as you just mentioned, and a number of our classmates and really close friends, and, you know, I'm just so honored to be able to, you know, have time with you this morning. I was reviewing your resume and I could not believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe all that this guy has accomplished in his life. I mean, working at the world bank and being a CEO and a founder, uh, starting banks in Syria, uh, you know, being a founding member of YPO and the Levant chapter and just all these incredible things. And, and I know there's a lot of times that I talk to young people and when they hear of somebody like you who has done so many impressive things in their career, it can almost be a little bit overwhelming. They're like, I, I, how can I ever measure up? How can, um, how could I ever accomplish that? Now, since I've known you and people like you, I know it's just people who are you know, hard chargers, they're driven and they're just working hard every single day. And if you consistently do that over the course of a lifetime, you can accomplish a lot. But I would love to just, you know, kind of go all the way back and hear your origin story. 
you know, how did you get started? What did, what did you do? And I think that'll be um, motivating and inspiring for a lot of people, maybe young people who are like, hey, I, I want to be like Basel. I want to I grow up and I want to accomplish great things. And, you know, how do I do that? So could you maybe start us just with your origin story a little bit? Absolutely. Um, uh, thank you for saying all of these nice, nice things. I don't know how to do two people that made all of this happen. Uh, and they did it with uh, incredible love. These are my mom and dad. Mm. Um and my dad, um, they both came from broken homes. Um, and my dad, and they both were kind of um, revolutionaries in their thinking. Um, they're Syrian, uh, and they met, and, and they got married, and they decided that they wanted to make sure that their kids have the best life possible. And in their minds, that really meant giving their kids the experience um, uh, to, to freely ex express feelings and options the way that they wanted and to do that with a lot of love mm. so I, I received so much love from my parents and i think this is probably my true north in every which way um, and the kind of love i received from them um, had some expectations as to being the truest and best version of of myself mm -hmm. but didn't have in it the idea that they wanted to live their lives through me or correct any mistakes they have made through me. Mm. And I remember when I was young, uh, making a lot of mistakes and, you know, talking to my dad about it. And I told him, I said, I really learn best from the mistakes I make. And he said, that's what you should do. Learning from other people's mistakes would be great. Mm -hmm. And I think you've, you've talked and we you know with some of our colleagues about that in previous podcasts, mm -hmm. but the, overarching lesson is when I learned from my own mistakes. Those mm. lessons end up being a lot more powerful. Wow. So so that's kind of how it started. And and you know, he was a diplomat. So we were living in different countries. You know, you, you asked me where I'm calling from. Now I call New York City my home, Manhattan. And it's the thirteenth major country or slash city I've lived in. Um, so that kind of characterizes my my sojourn, where you know I never really was able to call a place my home except Damascus, Syria, mm -hmm. and that didn't last long because of the civil war. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of had this idea from the time that I was young that I you know wanted to chart my own way. Um, so after I graduated from with my MBA, I kind of packed all of my stuff into a U-Haul truck and moved to Washington, D.C. to work for the World Bank. Um, but there was just one little hitch. The World Bank had never heard of me, nor did I have a job offer from them or anything like that. But I was so intrigued by the World Bank and what they did, and I just could really you know, vision myself being part of that uh, culture and part of that mission. And um, you know, I got lucky, so a few, few months later, I started working there. Wow. And afterwards, I really wanted to give something back to my country. Um, so I started working on Syria for, you know, I, I, all of my work in the World Bank was with this uh, investment arm of the World Bank called IFC, International Finance Corporation. It's the part of the World Bank that is basically functioning as a, an investment bank. So it only deals with the private sector. And I really wanted to do stuff for Syria and, and the Middle East. So I moved to that part of the uh, World Bank and started working on marquee transactions. And 
Um, one of them was to help design and write the laws for banking in Syria, which didn't exist at the time. They only had public, uh, you know, government-owned banks, and they were completely defunct. So I, I, again, got lucky and was able to work with some really smart people to write the law for banking in Syria. And after we did that, we invested in the first bank in Syria. Um, and actually, in retrospect, it became IFC's uh, best uh, Middle East investment to date oh, wow. in terms of IRR. So it has done superbly well. And a few years later, I was asked to set up a new bank uh, privately uh, with Bank Audi in Lebanon. Um, and, you know, the, the whole concept of setting up a bank became attractive to me because the founder said, listen, you set it up in an image that you, you think makes sense. You decide what makes sense. You'll have a board, you'll have a lot of people supervising your work, mm -hmm. but generally you will get set up the way you want. And so I, I did that, and um, lo and behold, in five years, we became uh, the largest lender in the country. We reached four, you know, four percent of GDP in size. Wow! We had six hundred and fifty employees. It was, you know, by far the dream place to work for a lot of young people, um, and it was pretty incredible. What year? What year was this when you were launched? This was two thousand five to two thousand fourteen, I think. If I, if right, I remember, two thousand four is when when we started the launch, uh, and by two thousand and and uh, nine we became the largest uh, lending institution. Um, and the civil war started in 2011. And during this time, you know, it's just, it was just an incredible experience, Bob, to, you know, see the effect of, uh, you know, opening up the economy and reform on, on people, hmm. uh, especially young people who really had lost hope um, with all of the drudgery of, of a centrally planned economy that was small and that was corrupt. Uh, and all of a sudden they have these new banks where you could actually make something out of yourself. So, um, you know, we grew quite, quite tremendously. And we had the opportunity to participate in other things. So in addition to the bank, um, the government wanted to start a stock market. So I got the opportunity to help structure the stock market and became its deputy chairman. And in 2010, it was the best performing stock market, although it only had like, you know, six stocks at the time. Um, and also they wanted to introduce um, uh, mortgage finance, who were the first to introduce mortgage uh, finance. And then um, they wanted to introduce insurance. So we participated in the creation of the first insurance company and uh, the first investment bank. So there were a lot of firsts at the time. And, uh, you know, the whole thing kind of grew until the Civil War happened. I want, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you about. I mean, I, I'm just jotting them down right now. This is an amazing career trajectory. And so I, I, I want to talk. There, there's two things that really interest me. Here, here you are. You're this uh, young man starting your career. And you said, I wanted to go and work for the World Bank. And I haven't heard too many people. I can't recall of anybody that I've talked to where they said, Bob, my goal graduating from an MBA program or whatever is to go work for the World Bank. How did you have that zeroed in laser laser focus that that's what you wanted to do? That's the organization. 
Was it because you had heard about what they were doing or as you've been traveling and living overseas and you saw how this organization was working and what it could do? Is it, what, what was the origin story that that was the place that you wanted to go? Oh, that's a great question. So for, for me, it was this idea of trying to save the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, when I was young um, and even today, there is a part of me that you know, wants to do that um, to the extent that I can. And when I was actually very young, I mean, you know, uh, I had three dream jobs, uh, working for the World Bank or writing for Mad Magazine or jumping with the, jumping the sea with Jacques Cousteau Society. So oh, wow. I don't know what these things have in common, but it was kind of this idea of doing something that um, is slightly adventurous mm-hmm. and unusual and uh, has a clear mission of its own. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I wasn't, uh, I was, I liked writing, but I wasn't that good of a writer to join man. And, um, my diving skills were nil at the time. So I, oh, that's good. Uh, but, but there is some just in it, the ideas of, of trying to change the way the world yeah. worked was, was the biggest attraction for me. Well, fast forward a few years after you're working there and you're starting a bank in Syria. And the thing that caught my attention when you were saying it was that you saw the hope that a, a new bank was able to give to young people in that country who had lost hope. And I'm thinking to myself, as we look around the world today, some of the challenges, some of the things that we're facing, you know, hope is so powerful. And people who don't have hope, it, it's very sad and it leads to very dire and dark consequences. And I, I'd like you to you know, just sit on this topic for a, a split second and and tell our listeners what you saw with a group of people who had lost hope, who were living in a situation that might seem hopeless. And then all of a sudden you and an organization come in, you're providing hope, you're providing opportunity. Now they're able to work. They're able to dream about the future. They're able to craft things like just paint the picture of what that was like. I mean, I I think it's probably the most, um, addictive thing I've ever encountered in my life, you know, and um, I I really think it's um, such an important thing not to lose hope. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think if you follow Martin Luther King Jr. and his quotes, he said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. And he was facing so many different and difficult challenges ahead of him. Um, But if I wanted to sort of look at that specific time um, of of my life on this planet, um, there were a number of things happening. First of all, Syria was opening up in such a radical way. And, you know, you could, me and a bunch of other people were kind of, supremely involved in this and responsible for it. Uh, And that was incredibly gratifying. Uh, The other thing that was happening was that young people were beginning for the first time to see see a future, to be able to vision a future where they can afford a house, get married, have children, and pursue a real dream, which until that moment in time, was not possible. Mm. Um, so, so as I said, the bank was 650 people. Most of them were in their 20s. 
And, you know, as people in their 20s do, they get married. And, you know, I get invited as the CEO of a bank to almost all of the weddings. And I, I didn't go to any of them. But what I did go to is any chance to go and enter their houses when there was any occasion, you know, whether it was a personal invitation or whether the, even it was a death in the family. And to go into their houses and see that these young kids were doing significantly better than their parents, mm. right? That just filled their parents with such pride mm -hmm. and it filled them with such hope because all of a sudden they could change a future that they were told would never kind of reform unless they were to leave the country and pursue that dream in, in, in another civilization such as Europe or the US or Australia, right? Yeah. And we're able to give them that in Syria for a short period of time. So that's really made me extremely happy. Um, and it is a collaborative process. But I think the bottom line is not to lose infinite hope. Mm. I think that's the bottom line. No matter what is it that we're facing, not to lose that infinite hope. Wow. Such a great reminder and what a powerful quote. So here you are, you're, you're motivated and inspired to, to go to the World Bank to save the world. Are you, where, where does my inspired, where are you going next? So, so it takes me to definitely being one of the 10 happiest people on earth for, I don't know, six years or so. Mm -hmm. And this key to happiness comes from the idea of being part of something much bigger than myself. Mm. Right. You know, can you imagine helping create and shape the dreams of, of a generation? I mean, this is like, you know, the stuff that, you know, it's just so lucky to be involved in this. Um, and it also takes me to this place where for, you know, in terms of visioning, I can actually see the rest of my life. And the rest of my life looked like I would be in Syria. I would be coming to the Harvard uh, uh, president seminar and seeing you and our friends mm. once a year. But my base will be Damascus. Mm. And I could see privatization taking place in the future and the country opening up further and further and more democracy and reform happening and people's expectations coming to fruition. Kind of a beautiful dream, mm. which did not happen at all. With the Syrian civil war, which started in 2011, there was this massive, massive collapse of the dream and this massive breach in the social fabric and the social contract between the government and its people, uh, and which took the country on a tailspin that I, you know, definitely has not even started to recover from, and mm -hmm. I don't know whether it ever will. So, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, Milton, you know, paradise, you know, found and then lost again. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where, where this ended up. And in this process, not only did I have to come to terms with, um, you know, how I survived the war uh, and was able to leave, but also what do I do with myself afterwards? Mm. Really hard. How did you... Uh, deal during that time when you you had seen you, you just alluded to this this dream this thing that's given birth given life given hope in, in, in your homeland and that this country that you 
uh, love and is you're so passionate about, and then to see that kind of like ripped from you because of events that are outside your control, I've got to think that that's it's just this gut wrenching feeling. That, and then you've got to leave friends and family and people behind. Um, you know, how there, there's a lot of people who have been dealing with difficult times in their life, struggles. Um, I mean, there's so many different events around the world that we could point to, but you know, what advice would you give people and how you learned uh, to process that? How did you grow? Uh, how did you deal with that disappointment? Because you, you've, you've pressed through that and you've continued to have great success uh, and do um, amazing things post that. But there's a lot of people who you can have a difficult time during those, those seasons and some people never get over it. Right. And what, what did you learn? What advice would you give to people who are going through situations? Yeah. So this is definitely by far one, you know, a very, very difficult experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't wish it on anyone. So, uh, I, I lost, uh, uh, a sense of, you know, my career. I lost a sense of, uh, who I was at the time, uh, I lost my sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, most importantly, and I, and I lost a lot of friends, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we lost people to, to the war in terms of, you know, uh, being kidnapped and dying and all sorts of really difficult experiences for us, but more notably for them and their families. Mm -hmm. But the, the hardest, uh, the biggest loss came from losing my sense of identity. Mm. So up to that point, I really thought of myself as a Syrian, as someone who has tried to preserve and create that dream for a lot of my countrymen and, and young, young friends. And then to uh, have that... Uh, taken away and, and being ripped, it kind of changed the metric. Um, and if, you know, part of our identity comes from the, uh, the reflection that we have on people's faces, right? So I could identify as anything, but when I talk to you, you would either concur or not. And I, you know, I can see that. Mm -hmm. So going from somebody who is from Damascus, from Syria, which is the oldest continuously inhabited capital in the world mm. to walk in into a room or talking to someone and saying, I'm Syrian. And the only question that they have in their mind is whether I am pro Syrian regime or pro ISIS. Mm. The, whole, the entirety of my culture and the way what, what it stood for, disintegrated into this idea of who I was vis-a-vis -vis the civil war. Oh, wow. And that was extremely hard. Um, and to navigate that was extremely hard because of all of the um, injustice and ugliness that was happening, not only within Syria by the regime, but everywhere else. You know, we had, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and you, know, you would hear about these you know, children that are strewn across the beaches of the Mediterranean, trying to flee with their families. And so it's just like that whole uh, tragedy mm. was continuing. 
And what is it that, that you can tell young people about that? What is it that you can tell them? Go out and fight or leave or stay? I mean, this is like one of these incredibly existential parts of life where it's very difficult to make a recommendation to anyone, even myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I decided to stick around um, initially. And I stuck around and we had a bank run, you know, I mean, who, who has experience building a bank and also seeing a bank run. Oh my gosh. Um, and we survived the bank run. We, we almost ex we experienced sanctions on the currency, which uh, we went from having 143 correspondent banks to having two in less than a week. In less than a week? In less than a week with you know, hundreds of millions being frozen by different banks because of the civil war. But it's, it's just like, you know, it's, you know, the a disaster that is kind of uh, extremely complex and very much layered, you know, and uh, existential. I mean, oh, that's all I can tell you. I mean, my life was threatened. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's one of these really difficult things to wrap uh, my head around. And then to try and figure out in all of this, you know, do I want to continue? And if I want to continue, how would I continue? Uh, and how, how would I persevere? Um, what emerged very quickly is my first priority is to protect my family. Mm-hmm and to make sure that they are safe and that they are psychologically secure as well. Wow. So we made the, the hard decision of leaving in 2012 uh, and you know, they left, they were on vacation and actually they went to a YPO uh, event and they never came back. They wow. stayed outside the country. Wow. Um, and had to kind of disconnect with that old life, it would become something that they aspire to and dream about, but it would not be part of their future ever again. Did you guys go to Dubai? Because I remember there was a time, that, didn't you spend a little bit of time in Dubai? Yeah, so initially I went to Beirut, okay. um, and I thought that, you know, it will be safe in Beirut, at least safer than Damascus. Um, and, you know, we spent a couple of years there, uh, and I was trying to manage the bank from Lebanon. And um, then I, I felt that the situation in Lebanon was not improving either. So we did move to Dubai, uh, and I started a private equity fund uh, in Dubai. Um, and the kids, you know, graduated high school from Dubai before coming back to the U.S. Wow. What a journey. So here you are, you're this prominent leader in Syria. And as I'm listening to you recount this chapter in your life, it seems like you were probably faced with day after day where it's not no easy day. There's a, a litany of decisions in front of you where they're all hard. There's no easy answer. Maybe as you were saying, you were talking about, you know, well, what advice do you give young people? Do you, do you tell them to stay? Do you tell them to go? Uh, do you tell them to fight? Uh, where each, that there's no easy answer. There's no right answer. 
it seems like, right? Was, is that what you're facing? You're like, hey, I'm a leader, but there's, there's no right answer. There's no easy answer. You're, you're having to make decisions with incomplete information. As a leader, I want to I double click on, on this moment in time, you as a leader, what are some of the things that you're doing? What, are you getting advice or coaching or mentoring from other people where you're just like, I need some help on, you know, what do I do? I'm, I'm trying to place myself in that situation. What would I do? You know, how are you navigating as a leader? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is such a good question and so multifaceted. So first of all, um, what I was trying to do is facilitate whatever decision anybody close to me had. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, you know, um, my wife decided that she wanted to be involved in saving the refugees and creating something for them. So I was heavily involved in that financially and, and every which way. Um, and the kids, whatever it is, they were, they wanted to be involved and I was helping them. So if people wanted to engage and trying to resolve the conflict, I was facilitating that. And if people wanted to engage in fleeing the country and carving something for themselves outside, I was also engaged in that. Because there is no way, I mean, what you said is absolutely right. There is, there is no right decision that anybody can sort of force or make unanimous on anybody else, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It had to be a very personal choice. So I was really trying to facilitate the personal choices of the people around me. And my own personal choice was to leave Syria, but stay close enough on the hope that if things do change, then I can re-engage with it. Obviously, that did not happen, Mm -hmm. and Syria went into being in a much worse situation. But, you know, uh, two things, I think, in my case, really helped. First of all, again, the love of my parents, right? I mean, that was just like, you know, this unconditional, you know, place that I can go to and say, wow, this this is just so amazing. And the other one, being coached. Mm-hmm. That was my first kind of, it was my second um, experience with coaching. When I started as CEO, I had a coach. Uh, it was good, but it felt kind of uh, clunky. Mm-hmm. But then when, when all of these things happened, I, I knew that I needed help. Um, and from that moment on, I had a coach and I never looked back up. Now, always have a coach, at least one. Um, and that's someone that is able to help me mm. solve problems, navigate through emotions and try and figure a way out that works for me. Mm. Someone who is thinking with me mm. about my issues. And there is nothing in the world like it. I, I think this is like the single most important investment that I have made. Uh, and also, it's it was so cathartic to just basically raise my hand and say, listen. Of your life, because um, we're going to fast forward a little bit in the story, because you have become uh, a world-class executive coach. This is how you're helping. And I've got so many questions on the power of mentorship and coaching and I got a slew of them right here. We're, we're going to get to that in just a second. But wh- while we're on this topic, I want to ask you about what you learned because uh, you had a front row seat uh, of watching this, this beautiful, advanced, incredible country literally fall apart in front of you, right? Through, through a series of events, a civil war and 
things outside of your control. And it's one of the fears that I have as a father, as you know, I'm a father of six and uh, I'm a, a, a history enthusiast and specifically here in the West, here in the United States, I think there's a generation of young people, maybe multiple generations who are growing up and they're thinking that, well, what happened in World War II, the atrocities of World War II, um, that could never happen again. And you and I have classmates that had parents that lived through the Holocaust. Uh, we have classmates and, and friends of ours who had family members that died in the Holocaust and other uh, uh, very extremely tragic uh, events around the globe. And I try to remind my children and be like, You're, we're blessed with freedom here, but trust me, it, it, it can happen overnight where you're, you're, you're living in a community you're living in a town, you're living in a city and everything is normal. And then something happens and all of a sudden people have to pick up and flee. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to prepare my children to ensure that they are strong enough, resolute enough, that, that they have the skills to be able to weather those types of storms. Because I believe that those are not storm things that you just read about in the history books. These are things that can happen right now. I mean, this is, you saw it firsthand in Syria. We've got friends who have lived through these types of things in, in Egypt and in Libya, and now we've got you know, things going on in, in the Ukraine. Any advice that you would give young people or people around the globe of just how to be prepared, how to navigate those challenging situations when you're faced with that? You know, how, how did you encourage your wife and your children? Um, any, any insights on that? Just for, for people who are listening, because I, I just, I, it, it really scares me a little bit of how close we are in so many places around the globe for, from that happening and people facing the consequences that you had to live through. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I remember a lot of, you know, the podcasts, uh, how you really come through, Bob, as someone who is uh, incredibly peace-loving into resilience and as well as trying to find, as you termed it, I think an exit lane, you know, to, to get out of struggles, you know, mm -hmm. how, how is it that we can reduce the amount of trouble in the world? And I, I congratulate you. So I, I think there is a way, at least the way that I try to reach my kids and mm -hmm. loved ones on this. And it's actually a way that fits everyone, but it's very individualistic. Mm -hmm. I got to behave in a way that is consistent with my values. Mm. And these are my values, right? Mm -hmm. They might be very different than those of the person closest to me, but I have to be true to my values. Mm. I should question them. I should spend a lot of time making sure that these values really reflect who I am, but then I got to act with my values. Mm. If I act against my values, that's when this dissonance happens and, you know, I'm no longer happy with the person that I am and that I, I don't want, right? This is like the recipe for, for unhappiness, understanding what my values are and just, you know, making sure that I'm, you know, that they're, that they're logical and make sense and I can act within them is I, I think the ideal. And that's what I've told my kids. And, you know, I kind of use the same, way of dealing with my kids that my parents have, have kind of dealt with me. I don't try to superimpose anything on my kids. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to, you know, make or not make the mistakes that I have made. They have their own mistakes and this is how they learn. 
I don't want to relive or correct some of my life in the way that they live theirs whatsoever. They are different people that, you know, that they have and they have a different trajectory. And that's why I'm super close to my kids. I'm definitely their friend and advisor and they're a little bit older than yours. Mine are 23 and 21. But, um, you know, I, I don't mentor them. Mm-hmm. I lead by example, sure, but mentoring them, I will not mentor them because the moment I tell them, oh yeah, this is something cool, you should do it. In my case, at least, my kids will like try very hard to do it, even if they're not convinced that this is something that's right for them. Oh, right? That's very interesting. And in some cases, they might push back and actually decide to do the opposite just because dad told them to do it. So I, I don't mentor my kids directly. They have their own mentors, they have their own coaches, and they thrive doing this. And each one of us has their own path. And that way, it allows you to remain um, their parent as opposed to their coach. You keep those, is it role separation? Is that what you feel yeah. is very important Absolutely. there? Okay. Absolutely. You know, and, and the thing about leadership in any context is that it's extremely heterogeneous. There isn't one formula for leadership Mm -hmm. at all. We have as many ways of leading one another as we have people, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so there isn't, there isn't one. And definitely it's a learned process. Uh, In many cases, uh, we might have some of the elements, but it's a learned process, but it's a, you know, highly individualized way of doing things. And that's the beauty of it. That makes life a lot richer. Yes. What, what great insight right there. And, one of the things I'm taking away from your comments here over the last few moments as you're uh, explaining some of the things that you learned is that it, it seems as I'm looking at you and thinking about other people, people that we may know, even historical figures that we've read about, when people go through a challenging event in their life, an existential crisis, I think the people that we read about and admire and respect, one of the reasons why they're able to come through and not only lead themselves, but also lead others and also make an impact in the world is because they have a uh, deep and strong foundation and belief and principles that are guiding them. They have a, a true vision of self. And you mentioned this, you said, is stay true to your beliefs, stay true to your principles, and you'll be able to navigate those difficult challenges. And you know, you've referenced Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm thinking of so many other historical figures that had that strong sense of self, those principles that they were unwavering during those times of crisis. And it was that North star that guided them through. And here you are, you're, you're, you face this challenge, your family had to leave Syria and your, your principles, your guiding vision got you through. Let's pick up on the, the, the origin story and where, where we left off. Where, where are you going next? What are you doing next? How are you continuing to grow and, uh, and go back all the way to that, that, that young man who's like, I want to save the world. I want to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think the, what you said is spot on. So having being true to your values um, and, and your beliefs definitely is, mm-hmm. is a way forward. But what do you do when it's inconsistent with your vision of the world, mm. right? What do you do when you wake up and you discover that, you know, your country is uh, undergoing a civil war or that, you know, you're, you're being taken to the gas chamber mm. or that you're, you know, you're, you've been occupied by a um, neighboring um, aggressor. 
there is there is this is a, this is difficult stuff mm-hmm. right this is really really difficult stuff and this is where our vision of the world is very important and you can sort of i mean it's a little bit philosophical but i think it's fairly simple you could take two extremes right so there is you know the nihilistic view of nietzsche and mm-hmm. and his his ilk on one hand which basically says you know, the world is a mess. We don't control anything. There is no meaning that we need, that we can derive. It is what it is. Just so do your thing, live your life any way you want. And who cares? And who cares? And there is the other extreme, which is the existentialist view of Sartre and his, and his uh, ilk, which is, okay, well, you're given a certain reality. And from that reality, you're the only one who can determine the direction. You decide the meaning yourself. That meaning may hold nothing else to anyone else, but it's, it holds enough meaning for you. Mm-hmm. So connecting the, the kind of the micro, which is my values and the way I see things, to the macro, which is this world vision, I think is key. And I'm definitely in this context much closer to Sartre, especially today than, than I, yeah, I am a nihilist. So definitely I, I, there is meaning to be derived from the world. And I, I, I am discovering mine. I know already parts of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that uh, to help others discover theirs. And that's actually really impactful for me. I'm really enjoying this process. I can tell you are. And I just, um, so how... Let's talk a little bit about how you get involved into uh, executive coaching because you, you, you're this, uh, you have this incredible business background. And I remember it was a, a little while ago um, when I was learning, right, that you were involved in executive coaching. You were very passionate about this. And it was right around the time that I had a, a number of individuals in my own life that it, it seemed like maybe it was during the COVID experience, but there was... I knew people who had executive coaches and then all of a sudden it just became everyone that I was talking to is like, Hey, I'm talking to my executive coach. I'm talking to my mentor. Here's what we're working through. And it just became the rage. And, um, let's unpack this. I'd I'd love to hear your, your story and why you're passionate about this and how you got involved in this. And it's, you know, one aspect of your career, but I've got so many questions specifically on this topic. Sure. So, so, I mean, I got, I started to care about this subject when I started with my coach Mm -hmm. um, after Syria. And I discovered that this person is able to help me think through problems. Mm -hmm. And actually, she was living in India and I was living in Dubai. And, you know, I think physically we only met once. Everything we did was over Zoom. But what an incredibly liberating experience talking to her was and discovering all the things that make me who I am. And as I started to move forward, I, I you know, I, as I mentioned, I started a, uh, a private equity fund, which did well. And so I got exposed to a number of different industries. Uh, and I wanted to kind of continue in the process of uh, lending because, you know, once a banker kind of, there's that always a banker in, in the back of your mind. And, um, as I started to do this uh, in earnest for myself here in the U.S., uh, I felt like it was not giving me any sense of impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had another coach uh, 
and I was talking to her uh, and she asked me, I mean, the beauty of coaching is how somebody else can ask this most incredible question. So I said, I'm really not happy doing compliance work and I want to do something else. Mm -hmm. And she asked me this simple question. She said, when you go to bed at night and you've worked really hard during that day, you've worked really hard, you're going to bed, you're a bit tired, but you feel energized by the work that you have done. What was it that you were doing? What was it that you were doing? And I knew it was not looking at Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> I knew it was not building a model. I definitely knew it was not looking at a deck. Mm-hmm. It was talking to Bob Dickey. It was talking to Adam Eisenman. It was talking to some of your guests, right? Mm-hmm. It was just this idea of going deep about subjects that we cared about and trying to figure a way out. Mm-hmm. And I told her, that's, that's what I like. And she goes, you know what that's called? I said, no, what is it? She said, that's coaching. And that was kind of a real wake up moment for me because I had not thought of coaching in these terms. And um, I never had seen myself as a coach, right? So I'm, you know, I sit on a bunch of boards. I've sat on like 17 boards throughout my life. So I love governance and, Mm. you know, all of that aspect. And I specialize in, you know, audit and risk um, uh, function. So I'm I'm really big on on that numerical aspect. And I also have helped um, clients with getting their... Uh, first family constitution off the ground and trying to figure out what is the direction for a family business. So I enjoy that. I never thought of myself as a coach. I've mentored a bunch of kids and, you know, I discovered later that mentoring and coaching are actually not the same and mentoring and coaching and consulting are not the same and mentoring and coaching and therapy are not the same, right? They're all very, very different. Oh, can you expand, can you expand on that? Tell us the difference. Tell us the differences. Because I think there's a lot of people who throw all those into the same bucket and be like, oh, it's all the same. And I love the fact that you've said these are very different. I want to, I want to hear how you uh, explain the differences. They're extremely different. So um, therapy is going into a topic that, especially something that has happened in the past and trying to figure out why am I doing something the way I am. Mm. And it's like delving deep into the past and trying to figure that out okay. so that I can wrap my head around it and I can understand myself better. Why am I doing this? This is why I'm doing it. Right? Okay. Consulting is when I come to Bob and I say, Bob, listen, I don't know how to do this. Can you show me how it's done? And Bob shows me how it's done. He can do it for me completely or he can do it the first time, you know, and then I can kind of copy. Okay. Mentoring for me, mentoring is kind of a gray area, but mentoring for me is really giving my personal direct experience from something to someone else. So when I mentor, uh, for example, one of you know one of my mentees, you know, she's looking for a diff- she's looking to change careers, and she's like the super successful private equity person in her thirties. So she comes to me with like different options that she's tried. And I tell her, yeah, this sounds good. This doesn't sound good. And I tell her why. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of mentoring 
that especially that I do it with people that I'm not close to is that she can take my advice and point of view and do with it whatever she likes. Mm-hmm. With kids, it's hard because if I tell my kid this works, this doesn't, they're either going to react in unison or against that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, it's an it, decision making is emotional, right? I mean, this is kind of what we're taught by uh, thinking fast and mm-hmm. slow with Kahneman, right? Oh, I mean, yes. I think that central theme of this is that uh, he's proven in a very scientific manner that, you know, humans make decisions often based on emotions and often not in their best interest. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I think this is like a huge thing. Um, coaching is really a thinking partnership. I love how you put that. So I'm trying to solve for something. And there is another set of brains and eyes and ears that is listening and that is trying to help me solve for that. Mm. It will not fix the Rubik's Cube for me. It will not put all the colors the way they should be. It will not tell me how it's done either. It will give me the tools for me to do it myself. Now, from a YPO and forum perspective, you know how passionate I am about mm-hmm. forum. Right. This fits in my mind perfectly because I want to always have agency over my decisions. Mm, yes. Right? Even if Bob tells me that the water is cold and I think it's cold and I jump and I figure out that it's cold because Bob told me that, that's, you know, I want to make sure that it's my decision that has made it and it's not somebody else's. Oh. That's when I learn the most, and that's when I can correct the most, and that's when I grow the most. So I think this is, in my mind, that's the difference between all of these. Um, all of them try to get us to a point where we're happier. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the overall arching goal right. is how to be happier. Um, but each one try gets there in a different way. What makes a good coach? And can anybody be a coach? If, if someone says, hey, I want to be a coach, I mean, I, I guess in some respects... Uh, there's no matter who you are, no matter where you are in life, there's probably people that you can uh, coach and help, right? So what what makes a good coach? Yeah, I mean, so there's, when I started thinking about this, and this is such a relevant question, because I really wanted to be a good coach. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a bad coach. Right. And I asked myself the same question, what would make me a good coach? So... In a nutshell, from my perspective, what would make someone a good coach is getting the proper training, right? That's kind of like first and foremost. Mm. You know, there are so many people out there that are practicing coaching and they have great clients, but they are not certified, right? And the coaching profession does not require certification. But getting a certified coach... You know, I would know that that person has been properly trained, has graduated with something, mm-hmm. and that they have a, you know, they know and they have the personal ethics for the profession, yeah. right? Which are really important. You know how when we walk into forum and we talk about confidentiality and, and you know, can you imagine doing something without having that forum training first, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what about if you're entrusting your whole life to someone else, mm-hmm. right? So, so I do think that the concept of getting certified and dealing with, with people that are certified is absolutely key. Mm-hmm. 
But then within that certification, there are all the coaching competencies. In addition to obviously behaving with ethics, you need someone who's really, really listening and really able to help us make those cognitive jumps followed by action to reach our goals. Because at the end of the day, coaching is about taking a plan, a dream, mm-hmm. and making it happen, right? It is not just about dreaming. We, we dream all the time. But how to accomplish that dream, how to go from point A to point B and make it, mm-hmm. that's the value and beauty of coaching. It strikes me that uh, coaching as a profession, and I believe it's a, a, a profession, is the the certifications and ensuring it's done the right way. It, you want to make sure that you're picking the right coach, as you just said, who's trained, who's who's gone through the certifications, just like you would pick a proper attorney to, 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 to do uh, a business uh, deal or a doctor who's going to help you with a medical issue. Choosing the right one is, is so important. I, I, I've got an example of an individual I know who uh, he calls himself a coach and it is a he has a train wreck of relationships all around him uh, because no certifications. Just like you know, he just I, I'm coaching people. I'm like I don't think that you're a coach, um, you know. So choosing the right one, <laughs> choosing the right one, is is so critical. What, are there certain certifications that you recommend that say somebody who's you know wanting to explore this? I mean, where should they start if they're like, hey, I want to I want to go through the coaching process. I want to become certified. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of them, but the one that I like the most is the International Coaching Federation. Okay. And they have several levels of certification, three levels. And it's, you know, it's, you have to take the hours. So it's not only that you can listen on Zoom, there is mm-hmm. testing and you have to take 128 credit hours, I think at least. And then you have to have several hundred hours of coaching experience. And then you're evaluated on some of this coaching experience. So, so there is like, it's a whole process. Um, but definitely, I think this is a part of it. But there is another part too, hmm. Bob, which is, you know, coaching is also about chemistry. Oh, yes. You know, you got to feel comfortable with the person who's sitting across from you and, and you're talking to them. You know, it, it has to go beyond just, you know, the, the training. Now, I think, you know, strong coaches, they come into this with absolutely no value judgment at all, mm-hmm. right? For them, they want to see things from your perspective without any value judgment. It's that they're completely on your side, whatever it is that you're trying to do. Wow. And that's, I think that's the beauty of it, having another thinking mind. That, that is so well said. What would you say to somebody who um, is, tr- is a friend and um, sees a high potential individual who might be stuck at a certain level in their career and there, there's this a glaring um, maybe deficiency, right? Like we, the old leadership and self-deception, right? Like we, we, it, sometimes it's hard for us to see, you know, where we're at, but somebody else has a different perspective and they can see uh, maybe some weaknesses or shortcomings or areas where we need to improve. And let's say you, you, you have a friend and you're trying to help them. And you're like, I know this individual needs to get an executive coach or uh, 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 to help them in this particular area. But for whatever reason, they don't see it and they're pushing back like, ah, no, I'm good. I'm good. 
are there ways in which that you can in, encourage that person to I- explore and say, hey, just t- test this out. I, you know, I've had a couple of situations like this, uh, even within the last year. And I'm just kind of curious, how, coach me on how I should coach, uh, you know, others that I feel like, you know, that they, 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 they need something like this, but they're just unaware. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, uh, you know, the, sh- the very short answer is not everyone is coachable. Mm. Some of us are so sure of ourselves and our trajectory and what we're doing to the point that we don't believe that a coach can add any value. And even if the organization brings us someone, we may end up not being coachable. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's definitely it. But um, the good news is that almost every coach that you will run across, especially those that are certified, mm-hmm. will be very happy to spend a number of hours with someone who could potentially be a client just so that they can help them. I mean, this is one of the elements of, of the profession, right? The idea is to lift people up, mm-hmm. right? All of the other things that come with any industry of monetization and stuff like that is secondary. So you're, you know, not only me, anybody that you know who is a coach is like is likely to be very happy to spend a number of hours with your friend who is looking, who may or may not be looking for a coach. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is make the introduction, right? Mm-hmm. And then they can spend some time and see whether that person is coachable and whether there is enough to go on or not. Um, and I think it's a beautiful thing. I, in my mind, everybody should have a coach. Mm, I agree. I couldn't agree I mean, more. Let's have coaches. Um, everybody should have a coach. And, and it's just such an incredible thing to have somebody else in your corner. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. What, um, what are some of your favorite clients to work with? Uh, and who are the people who get the most out of the coaching experience? What attributes do they have? They, I, I would imagine they come prepared. They, they're, they're, they're hungry to learn and to, and to get better and to dive in and do the requisite work. You know, as, but what are the things? Now, this is just me off the top of my head speaking. You're, you're, you're the professional here. Who, what, what makes a, a great client that receives the greatest benefit from working with a coach? Yeah, I think coaches are also different, right? There are mm-hmm. things that they like more than others. Um, so so in, in my case, I have experienced tremendously very active growth in my in the business that mm-hmm. I've that I had run, right? So I took a bank from fifty million dollars to two billion dollars in five years. Wow. And experiencing that massive growth is exhilarating. And I also understand how easy it is to make one mistake and that mistake will scale with the business, right? <laughs> you know, and, and it, once the mistake scales with the business, it's very hard to rewrite. Yes. So I, I, I kind of like that space of massive growth. And I also like the space on the way down as well, because I've experienced that in a very real way, mm-hmm. right? How to manage the downturn, and what kind of resilience do we need to manage the downturn? So these are the two areas I, I like. Um, I really like working with challengeable CEOs. And, and I think those CEOs who are challengeable, they know who they are out there. They tend to want to improve. They tend to see resilience as a goal. Mm-hmm. And basically today, all of this stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to be living in today's world because all of the stuff is the stuff of science now. 
because of the way that social sciences has evolved over the last 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. we actually know the answer to these things. We know how you go from fragile to resilient to anti-fragile, like Nassim Taleb said, mm -hmm. right? So we know that curve very well. We know exactly what are the five main, main drivers of resilience among CEOs, right? Mm -hmm. And we know how to solve for them. We understand positive psychology now enough to understand its effect on our daily lives, not only on our performance at work, but on our performance, you know, with our loved ones, on the way that we lead our families. So all of these things. Um, so, um, so for me, it's the idea that this uh, CEO is coachable and that they are they they either are undergoing massive growth or mm -hmm. they're preparing for a massive uh, downturn. There are coaches who specialize in that in the idea of okay, I'm you know my performance is at uh, I'm, I'm having a ten percent return. I want to bring it to twelve percent mm -hmm. the next year. I can solve for that too, but that's not my specialization. Okay. Right? My specialization is the big uh, kind of ups and downs and how to navigate through them. Man, with your experience and all that you've done, I can see that you're just like a world-class leader that you can be sitting right next to somebody uh, helping that that leader just feel secure, like an extra set of eyeballs, another board member who's sitting there being like, hey, you know, here, here's here were my life experiences, right? Here's what I've learned. And just like that, that other person to kind of just make you, uh, help you see the world through a different lens. I can just see you being just absolutely world-class in that role for these leaders. Man, is there anything that you would say like, Bob, you know, th these are these are the areas that are off limits. Is there anything off limits in coaching or uh, challenges or problems that you'd say, no, th these aren't these aren't things that you should bring to an executive coach. They need to go someplace else or are executive coaches able to do and talk about any issue and challenge? Any issue and challenge. Any issue and challenge, and the, and the way it works. So this is kind of the other way in which therapy and coaching are different. So if I have an issue and I'm trying to solve for it, and I'm talking to my coach, mm -hmm. we do talk about the past. Mm -hmm. Definitely, we do see how how did this issue come about, what memories does it trigger, but we don't spend a lot of time there. We just acknowledge that, right, mm -hmm. and then we move forward to how to solve for it you know what are the what is the goal of the conversation what are the options that we are seeing mm -hmm. what are the obstacles that we are facing and what is the action plan that we want to do at the end of the day and how do we hold that action plan to account so and a lot of it is built on you know um the work of positive psychology, such as Marty Seligman, and lately also the work of Arthur Brooks, you know, who's who's been a tremendous voice on on making sure that people are lifted up and having more happiness in the world. And, and, and this is the beauty of it. Uh, a lot of cultures and a lot of our biases and the way that we are programmed, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, to see the snake in the grass, we end up seeing the negatives, right? We notice the negatives right away. That's what jumps at us. But in in the uh, you know in the method of coaching and in the way that we can become a lot more effective, it truly deals with the positive. Mm -hmm. That is so, po that's so powerful. On top yeah. of it, you know. So 
it's a, it's a really beautiful combination. And I can see that people need help with that right now because I, I, I really do believe we are being programmed to see all the negative around us. And if you just focus on the news and just focus on all the things that are happening, it's just like you can be without even realizing it's just like you see negative everywhere. And I find times that I need the, the, the people that bring value and encouragement to me are helping me reframe my thinking and see the world through a different lens. Be like, no, no, Bob, hold on a second. Let, let, here, here's where, here's all the positivity. Here's where the beauty is. Here's where the opportunity is. Here's where the greatness is. And, 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 and humanity is not all bad, but you look, look at all these wonderful people striving and making, you know, huge improvements in life and serving mankind and making a difference. And we've got to be reminded of that on a daily basis, right? So otherwise we'll get into that deep, dark hole uh, of, dis of despair. You know, I, one of the things I find really interesting is I had not thought about parents getting coaches or helping um, their children have a coach and how that can actually protect the parent relationship. And it, it, for parents who are listening to this and thinking about it, um, are there any pieces of advice because uh, I, I can see, um, I, I have examples in my life of people, of parents who were well-intentioned and gave advice to their children and their children followed it because they loved and respected their mom and their dad. And it turned out to be the absolute worst advice that they could have um, been given. It turns out to be a, a, a cataclysmic in their life. And because of it, it ruined the parent a child relationship. There's, there, there's friction there, right? Because of, uh, the child having followed advice that mom and dad gave. And so I'm just, I'm curious, uh, maybe what you've seen and, you know, how parents can maybe leverage this to where they can, you know, protect that parental relationship and their children can be getting some, maybe some advice, but I don't know, just like, I'd like to, you to explore that a little bit. It's, it's, I think what you said is very wise. And what is the English saying um, about the road to hell being paved with good intentions, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the intentions is not the problem. The problem is the behavior. Mm. And then the behavior is, you know, when I look at my kids, what is it that I want for them? I want them to be happy in the way that they want to be happy. So there is that um, there is that respect to the distance that they want to have mm -hmm. from me for their life. It ends up that this distance is very very tight. Actually, the the more leeway I give them, the closer they they become. Mm -hmm. um, my two kids tell me everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like everything. And it's just a wonderful relationship, but it's built, it's based on the fact that I don't judge their trajectory. I don't try to control it. And I respect them for who they are as people, who they're trying to become as members of society. Right? Mm. Whether this member and, and their approach fits perfectly in my world or whether it doesn't. Oh, yeah. So, for example, my daughter, uh, we don't have anybody who's in medicine or biology in our family, in, in our extended family. Just never happened. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, from the time that she was young, she was very good at so many things. I mean, whatever you give her, she was very good at it. But she had passion for none of it. I mean, she would do it. She would get the grade. But you don't see this, you know, love for what she's doing. Right. 
until she took her first biology class in ninth grade. Oh, wow. And she said, I love this. And we were like, fantastic. What is it that you need in order for you to thrive in this field? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as good parents, we try to, you know, she would identify the way and we would try to help her pave it. And, you know, now she's 23 years old. She's working in Cambridge trying to cure ALS. Oh, and wow. it's she's in love with it. We I don't even, you know, we know nothing about, you know, that whole field. Mm-hmm. But this is what she wanted and it's fabulous for us. And then you have the other example, my son, who is has passion for so many things. I mean, he's good at so many things and he has passion for so many things. And he wants to experiment, he wants to try different things. Mm-hmm. And it would be just, you know, I, from my perspective, I would be doing him a disservice state. Oh, you know what? This is nonsense. Just focus on this. Who am I to know? Mm-hmm. I am a limited human with very limited experience. I've lived my life experiencing only things the way I do. Mm-hmm. How do I know what is it that he, he is and how he likes? Mm-hmm. He should experience that for himself. Yeah. And my, my role is to be there whenever he needs me. I want to be the 911 call, right, yes. for, for my kids. I want to be the first person they contact if there is anything, and I am. And I want to be their advisor when they ask for advice. That's it. That's so well said. And I think that the more that we give agency and autonomy to our children to kind of make decisions, we give them, you know, we teach them the principles that were and are important in our life. We show them how we see the world, but knowing that we can't force and control them, it, it builds trust, right? You know, it's, um, it builds trust. And then I, I love how you've, you know, articulated this, that then, you know, they, they become closer to you, right? Because they, they know they can trust you as a, not only as their father, but a person who, you know, cares deeply for them. And you're, you're allowing them the, the, the leeway to make the decisions that they need to make and grow and experience and see the world. Um, for sure. If you, if you think of your own kids and you have sex, mm-hmm. so, they are all brought up in the same household, right? Yeah. By the same parents, you know, mm-hmm. and each one of them, not only are they different individuals, each one of them has their own value system. I'm not saying that their values are so radically different. They could be, mm-hmm. but they have their own very specific and unique value system. So mm-hmm. do my kids. Mm-hmm. So how is it that I, how would I know what suits my kid in terms of, career choice and, you know, people he want, they want to be with and all of these things. If I don't truly understand their value system and their value system is evolving all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything um, changing in the realm of coaching? What's the future hold? I mean, what are the industry? I mean, everything, it seems like the entire world around us is radically changing, growing and developing. What do you see happening in, in, in this space in terms of changes and developments? Yeah. So there are three trends, I think. So the first trend is this idea of collaboration, right? Um, Today, uh, coaches are able to collaborate because of technology a lot better than before. So for example, I have my own sets of exercises that I have done um, with with my own IP. There, Mm -hmm. There are things that I have, you know, kind of designed And I can share these with the rest of the world and so can other coaches who have a lot more experience than I do. So I end up benefiting from a whole slew and libraries of 
exercises and ways of doing things that have been done by, by other coaches, and, and it's just a fabulous thing. Second, I think we are moving more towards this idea of certification, right? Uh, I, I think people are beginning to realize that, you know, getting a coach um, involves this chemistry that we spoke about, but there is an, an increasing number of people that are going for coaching with people that are coaches that are certified. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think, you know, with the whole field of social sciences improving, I think we'll be moving closer and closer to the idea that coaching should be something that is very commonplace, that most of us should have coaches, and that it should include some kind of uh, perspective on happiness. Mm. This is the whole happiness uh, space is growing tremendously. And um, the more we look at it and the more we look at positive psychology, you know, it, it's, it seems to be difficult to scale, mm -hmm. but it also seems to be easy to do as well, mm -hmm. right? So in the past, when you think of, you know, can, can someone be happy or not, it would have been a much harder question to answer than today. Today, we kind of know the macronutrients of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And we can analyze them and we can support that with neurological research. It's not kind of a theory or a fantasy. So I see these at least are the three main things that we can see that will have an impact on coaching for the future. Speaking of happiness, going all the way back to the beginning where, where you're talking about your, your journey, and you, you, I, you see this trend line for you, and I'm curious if you see this for other leaders. Is happiness connected to um, being a part of you know something that is a, a worthy cause that is bigger than you, where you are helping inspire and motivate or do good in the world for other people, and where you realize that th the way that you're spending your most valuable asset the minutes, the hours of your day are being spent in this worthwhile cause where you're adding value. Are those, it seems like that were, 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 those were things that were very important for you to be happy throughout your course of your career where you got the greatest fulfillment. Do you see that in other leaders? Is there anything else that you would add to that mix or? You're spot on, you're spot on. So definitely from what we see is, is this idea that we are part of something bigger, right? Mm -hmm. We have a vision of the world and that vision of the world includes our work so this is definitely key and this is all proven stuff it's not me or somebody else uh, talking then here's where it gets really cool so definitely part of happiness is being kind to yourself mm. and the kinder you are to yourself the more you are happy but here's the really cool part if you're kind to others your level of happiness becomes higher than if you're just kind to yourself. Oh, I love that. So this is, you know, for me, this was like a fabulous way to look at the world. It's a world where we are all connected, right? Through this feeling of, of, of love. And it's just the most wonderful thing. And also what we were looking at in terms of uh, linkages, we're looking at fear and love and Fear and love are actually opposites. The opposite of love is not hatred, it's fear. So can you imagine that fear, which drives us 
completely bonkers is the opposite of the sensation that we get when we think of love. Oh, wow. So really, really nice um, uh, research and, and cool uh, happenings coming from uh, University of Pennsylvania, from Harvard Kennedy, from all over the place, from Yale, uh, looking at all of these things. Well, speaking of those distinguished universities, uh, you are a graduate of the Harvard Business School President's Program, and that's where you and I met. And uh, what, what are you doing currently for, for you to continue to learn and grow? And I know uh, you're a lifelong learner. You're a learned man and constantly looking to scale up. And I would imagine that one of the key things about being a great coach is you don't want a coach that is basically dialed it in and be like, all right, I'm done learning. I've got all the knowledge. You, you want to, you want a coach, right? Who is like, just has this insatiable appetite to learn and grow. And, and that's what I know about you. What are you doing currently uh, to continue to your educational journey? I, I, I think I'm doing a little bit too much, but you know, this is probably one of the dangers of being in IPO. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, there are two things that I'm doing as we speak. So, um, when I was looking at this whole idea of uh, coaching and happiness, our uh, our good friend Brett Keith sent me a book by Arthur Brooks called From Strength to Strength. Mm. And I had I read the book and I said, wow, this is kind of revolutionary for me. Um, because it seems that life happens in the transitions. Oh, and he yes. talks about that transition. Mm -hmm. And so many friends of mine and me at the top of the list are going through transitions. So I wanted to really understand that. So after reading the book, I said, we should really do something with Arthur Brooks. Uh, and I had not, you know, you and I went to Harvard together. Mm -hmm. He was teaching one class, mm -hmm. I think. I did not go to that class for whatever reason. So I had not really heard of him mm -hmm. until the moment that I read the book. So I picked up the phone called him up and said, let's do something around YPO with this. I spoke to the YPO board and, you know, the learning, um, uh, our learning uh, and management uh, colleagues. And we structured actually a really um, fascinating uh, course around happiness in Arthur Brooks, which is going to take place in October, um, end of October. Uh, and we have... 80 some odd participants already oh, wow. and it's looking great. So I'm really looking forward to working with Arthur on this, especially that he has a book out now with uh, Oprah Winfrey. Wow. And I think we'll see a lot more of Arthur and the YPO halls as well. And while doing this, I, I really longed to go back to Harvard, mm -hmm. but I felt like I had done the Harvard business school bit. Mm -hmm. So what was left? So, you know, a friend of mine suggested that, you know, we have this whole Harvard Kennedy thing mm -hmm. and he has a lot of passion for it. Here's another young YPO or super challengeable called Ricardo de la Fuente. And he's like, let's do a course on the complete leader, right? Mm. Not just about the business, but creating the complete leader. What is your true north? What matters in life? All of these things. So Ricardo and I have launched this course. Uh, it's the first, you know, we're doing the first year um, on uh, October, uh, on September 16th. So in a few weeks, and it's a three year course, um, which starts now. Wow. And we had, uh, we have 82 people signed up and 450 people on the wait list. And I can't wait to delve in. 
uh, I already got one of the exercises and it basically said, talk about an experience in leadership that really got you thinking. Mm -hmm. And I basically spoke about Syria and, you know, trying to survive and, you know, trying to lead the bank through transition and all of these things and civil war. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. I think there we have now some incredible programs in YPO that, that are being offered. But even if you're not in YPO, there is so much happening out there. And this is the beauty of, of technology. Mm-hmm. This whole thing has been democratized. Mm-hmm. When you and I joined YPO the first time, you really had to go to a course and pay a lot of money and be there physically. And, you know, now... These are at your fingertips. So no matter where you are in life, you can actually uh, pursue learnings at every front. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. And I'm, I'm hoping that you'll join us in some of these things. Bob. I, I can't wait. It's been a dream of mine to attend the Kennedy School. And I've, I've been keeping track of all the various courses and programs that are there. I wanted to get through the HBS program first. But when I heard that you were developing something, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't wait. So I'm so happy that you're doing this. And you know, so many great professors and um, global thinkers that are part of the Kennedy School and so much there to experience and learn. You know, what advice, like for the people who are not in YPO, what advice would you give maybe young people coming up to encourage them to continue to be a lifelong learner? You and I have heard this from so many of our professors in the various programs that we've been a part of, but maybe someone who's listening, this is the first, you know, maybe exposure that they're hearing to uh, lifelong learning and continued education. Uh, Imagine maybe a a young person or a mid-career professional who's hearing this for the very first time. What words of encouragement would you give them? And are, are, are there places, resources where they say, hey, go check this out. Here's a, here's a great place to go and get started to continue your professional development to be the best leader that you are wherever you've been placed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- th- there is so many. I mean, you, you, people talk about the Khan Academy, which, which offers courses and so many different things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the fascinating things, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but on MIT, they had a, an open class, open global class with grades. And the first, I think it was like a 2000 person class, which you could take either if you're an MIT student or if you're just a person Mm -hmm. who's not an MIT student. And after they took the test, the first 193 grades belonged to people who were not at MIT. And I believe it was the, this is the toughest course that MIT offers, if memory serves me correctly. Right. If you remember it, maybe you can correct the numbers, but I think it was around 193 somewhat, you know, students. So there is a wealth of information out there, Mm -hmm. you know, there is just a wealth. I remember when I was young, my dad coming into the house, super excited. He had just bought the full Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, look at this, you know? And, you know, we would go through it together and we can come up with any word and go and research it. Now, the whole world is at our fingertips. On our phone. Our phone. Yeah. And you can take a course, you can take a class. I mean, just, you know, the amount of information is just absolutely wonderful. 
my, my only kind of tip is definitely pursue what you like mm-hmm. and just go for, try to go for sources that have been verified, right? Because we know how this this whole thing kind of blends, you know, um, fact and fiction and, and everything in between. Yeah. So just try to figure out what is it that you think, you know, are credible uh, resources and just go after them. And they will have incredibly um, intriguing uh, courses and, and uh, education and learning for people. Such great advice. And one of the, the, the aspects of that story that you just told that I absolutely love is one of the highest scores achieved in that MIT class was from a young boy in the capital of Mongolia in Ulaanbaatar, and he received a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship to attend MIT because of his performance in that class. So you never know the doors of opportunity that are going to open to you. And you see, you know, Google right now is doing uh, various certifications that you can get. And so the, the, the pathway in the past was, hey, you need to go attend this four-year institution. You need to get a degree or maybe you need to go get advanced uh, education. And you, you've highlighted this multiple times that we're entering into this era of certifications. There's multiple pathways now where you can go and be hired in at Google and Amazon and other very prominent, uh, incredible companies without having a four-year degree, but they're offering these online certifications that are available to anybody. And I'll tell you, one of my favorites, uh, I, I like edX, but Coursera, I've actually gone out, there's been multiple things that I have felt in my professional career, like, you know what, I'd like to learn a little bit more about this. I want to get a little more experience about this. And you can go out, I've done it with Coursera. You pay 50 bucks, you take this online course and you have a certification. And I, I just think these resources, resources are absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, Coursera has one course that I really like, which is by uh, Professor Santos uh, of Yale, which also focuses on happiness. Oh, I have a friend who took that one. Yeah, really, really cool. I mean, just like, you know, really incredible learnings from that as well. Oh, my goodness. So uh, so much incredible uh, wisdom and knowledge here. Uh, on, the, you've, on the journey of learning, you've mentioned multiple books throughout the course of this conversation. I'm going to make sure to have those in the show notes. Uh, you mentioned Arthur Brooks's uh, From Strength to Strength. Uh, you, you've talked about uh, one of your other favorites, so Daniel Kahneman. I think uh, uh, thinking slow, thinking fast, right? Um, thinking fast and slow. Thinking fast and slow. Okay. Are there any other books that you have read that you're currently reading? Like, man, this has been a game changer in my for my career, for business, or for me personally that you'd want to highlight? For sure, there's so many. So I'm 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 like you know an avid uh, reader. I read a book recently, and I don't know how old it is, uh, but it's a really good book about uh, uh, death and dying. You know, so in the past, uh, I think you know when you and I were were young, there was this book called uh, "The Denial of Death," uh, which which made its debut, and it was like uh, thought of to be very revolutionary. But I think it turned out to be a little bit of a harsh take on on death. Mm-hmm. The book is called uh, Staring at the Sun by Irvin Yalom. And it's just an incredible book of understanding the arc of life from the beginning to the end, which includes, you know, uh, all all phases of life, including uh, death. 
Um, there is uh, there is Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, which I thought was really well uh, written. Um, and um, there is um, uh, Mindset by Carol Dwake, which I think is a must read. Uh, really for for everyone, and I know you and I like Adam Grant. Uh, Think again, oh, yes. which has I think which challenges my thoughts quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think these are like the main ones that that I I would focus on. There is one more, um, and I think I mentioned the process of visioning several times. It's probably my favorite favorite book I read in the last two or three years. Um, and it's called Into the Magic Shop. Into the Magic Shop. It's not a very well-known book. It's written by a Stanford neurosurgeon. But it's an incredible book that brings together science as well as, um, um, science as well as, you know, psychology Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of um, help people vision how they move forward in life. Wow. Okay. So these would be kind of my favorite books, I think. Wow. Great recommendations. I can't wait. You've, you've, I love it when somebody recommends a number of books that I, I have not yet read, and you've done that. And so I, my, my reading list uh, is going to expand, and I'm going to be doing an Amazon order here this afternoon, courtesy of you. Um, as we're rounding the horn and we're uh, kind of in the home stretch here, out of curiosity, what's a question that I did not ask about? your background or this, the particular industry that I should have? What, what, what's the thing that I missed? I want to make sure I'm not leaving anything untouched, valuable information for our listeners. What's a question I should have asked that I didn't? You are an incredible um, interviewer, by the way. Uh, I don't know whether this is something that you've done for a long time or this is a more recent uh, venture. But I think you cover the bases extremely well. Oh, uh, what fascinates me is like you and I got in touch with each other yesterday or the day before mm-hmm. just to plan this, and and we jumped right away on 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 this. And clearly, you know, for you, planning something like this is uh, really simple because you have it all in your head. <laughs> so congratulations! I can't think of a single thing that you should have asked that you haven't. Okay. Um, and I I'm looking forward. Not I mean I, I'll definitely listen to my to the this podcast. But I'm looking forward to listening to a lot of the other podcasts that you'll do with other people. So far, it's been a wonderful uh, walk down memory lane, as I mentioned, as well as incredible learnings. Uh, We do spend time with people, Mm -hmm. but we don't go as deep with them day to day. Mm -hmm. And your podcast provides us with that ability to really delve inside someone's mind. Um, so I really enjoy it and, oh. and congratulations. Well, thank you. I, it's a passion project of mine. And uh, I, I, I told my wife, I said, look, if I only had one listener and it was me, it would still be worth it. And I, my, the secret for me is I, I interview people that I love and respect and that I find interesting and that I want to learn from. So I, I really approach this project um, from specifically from that first, which is I want to learn from somebody. I want to, these are my questions, right? Like these are things that I, I, I want to glean insights from. How can I level up and be a, a better husband, a better father, a better leader? And uh, each person I talk to, I feel like I walk away with so much you know, more insight. And I've got so many you know, notes and things here that I've taken this afternoon and that you've given such incredible content. Um, 
couple more questions for, for people out there who are like, you know what? I've been sitting on the fence. I, I know that I need an executive coach. I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to start. Um, where can they find you and where should they start looking if they're looking for an executive coach and help them with that, that starter conversation. If they're reaching out, um, how, how do they engage with somebody for the very first time and say, you know, I'm, I'm raising my hand. I need a little bit of help. Help me. How, how do they do that? So, so I think it's fairly simple. I mean, it, it, you know, it, I'm, I'm not for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So, and nobody ever is. Uh, and I take on a, a limited number of, of clients, but I'm always happy to make an introduction, okay. right? So uh, my uh, email is b at hamwi.com, b at h-a-m-w-i.com. And my website is uh, hamwiconsult.com. Uh, and and you can reach me on either one, and I can you know make an introduction to someone, or or we could work together, depending on the case. But I think it's the best way I think of getting a coach. Mm-hmm. Honestly, is word of mouth. Mm. Right? So it's you can go on the web, right, and mm-hmm. try to figure who who you know what, what are people saying about so and so and which coaches. There is nothing like having that discussion with Bob and Bob saying, you know what? I think I know someone who can help, right? This kind of referral is probably the best way where you can uh, identify a coach. And like I said earlier, I think almost all coaches will be happy to spend ample time discovering whether there is a good match with a client. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've done at one point three sessions with one potential client just to discover that this will probably not work mm-hmm. out. But just like going deep and trying to understand what is it that they're trying to deal with and where they're going. And then making an introduction to someone else, mm-hmm. right? Coaches know coaches, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we're always happy to make an introduction to someone else and they can take it from there. Fantastic. Well, I, and I know that you have given the certifications that people ought to be looking for when they're engaging with uh, a coach. And we'll put, make sure to put those in the show notes. So people, I know, I know for me personally, I probably, this is no joke. It, it's easily one to four to five uh, contacts a day that I'm getting on LinkedIn of people who are like, Hey, Bob, I want to be your coach for, you know, I'm, I'm taking on a limited number of clients to help executives lose weight and get fit. Or I can help, I can help you with your business. It's yeah, like, yeah, I, I love I LinkedIn. I wouldn't engage with that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've never sent a LinkedIn message. Yeah. Um, so, so, and I, I also get these a lot. So mm-hmm. I, I, I hear you. I, I wouldn't go in that, yeah. uh, in that space. I would just definitely seek a recommendation. Right. Be very intentional, be very thoughtful. It's just like picking uh, an attorney or a doctor. You want to get somebody with the right right credentials, the right training. Um, one of my uh, final questions that I've been asking recently, and I'm really looking forward to your insight on this because you have, you've lived, as you said, I think 12, 13 different places around the globe. You've got this global perspective um, and you have so many experiences uh, you've been able to see the world through so many different lenses, but let's pretend that President Biden has called you up and he says, Basel, I want you to give a State of the Union address to the American people. I, uh, I want you to you know, say something that's on your heart, encourage them, and um, you know, what would you say? 
And if you want to take this in a different direction, you have a different group of people you'd like to address. But I've really been finding it interesting to see what leaders would say. And, you know, obviously I'm being a little bit uh, U.S. centric with this question. Uh, but maybe if you want to make it more global and say, you know, if the, the, the U.N. was giving you an opportunity to address U.N. leaders, you know, what would you say? But I'm just I'm curious, how, how would you motivate and inspire or what's on your heart that you would want to share with? Uh, the United States or the globe? Yeah, I mean, I think in the U.S., uh, as well as the rest of the globe, everywhere you look, there seems to be a lot of division. Mm -hmm. right? It seems that um, we are, again, kind of the snake in the grass. We're focusing on how we're different. We're focusing on where we think something is dangerous and we're reacting to it. I would want to try and figure out what is there that we can focus that brings us together. Mm -hmm. Because what we have in common is like so rich, right? So incredibly rich. Um, and, and no matter what that is, right? So, I mean, I, I did not grow up playing with Barbie or knowing much about Barbie. And I have not yet watched the film. Mm -hmm. But I was so happy to see so many people wearing pink and going to the movies together and there is a movement and you know I, I really don't know all of the nuances of it but i think it's fabulous that we have unifying things that can bring us so the more things that we can unite around i think the better and you know um speaking of podcasts i think the the BBC has a happy pod, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like just, I think it's once a week or something that talks about positive things that have happened, uh, you know, causes for celebration and happiness. I think these things are, are absolutely wonderful. I'd love to find ways uh, of, of addressing people involving positive psychology, mm -hmm. like trying to aspire and move forward and celebrate some of achievements that we had you mentioned some of them you know all of the books that have been written the philosophical works the music the culture all of these things that are so incredibly rich the scientific achievements that we have achieved just now i mean i, I find it incredible to to know for a fact that we as a, as a as a globe have never ever been richer mm -hmm. We have never, ever been healthier. We have never, ever lived longer. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And yet, we seem to be so sad and depressed about the future and so divided. Mm. Right? I find these two trends to be absolutely bewildering. Mm. You know, it's, we've never been more prosperous. And I'm not just talking about the U.S. I'm talking about the totality of the globe. And yet we, you know, we tend to focus on the things that bring us down. But that's something that I would like to, you know, our leaders to kind of address and try to change. Um, and appreciate that they are, they have this leadership position for, for a reason. You know, and, I, you know, as I said, leadership is heterogeneous, so everybody does it differently. But, I mean, I know you, you know, Bob, you, you would lead by inspiration. You would, you would stand up and try to inspire people to behave in a better way, mm -hmm. to find, you know, the exit ramp, to, to focus on solutions. And, and that's what I would hope our presidents can do. 
you know, look at the positivity of life and look at how where we have gotten and make sure that we don't slip rather than to focus on how divided we are. So well said. And that's what a great coach does is help people see the world through a different lens, see different perspectives that they might be missing and call us up to be the best versions of ourselves, see the positivity in life, help us to be, to be happy, remind us of all the, the great things that are happening in our life and around us that we can be happy and joyous about and hopefully inspire one person that can go out and inspire many, many more. And I think about some of my happiest moments uh, at Harvard and you're there and you had a, a hand and a role uh, to play in that. And you have been this type of person for quite some time uh, since I've known you, a person who motivates and inspires, coaches others, mentors others, helps them. Um, I, so many of our classmates just have so much love and respect for you. And I, I also want to say thank you for the leadership role that you've played with YPO. I know you were on the, the international board for many years and uh, that is a, a role with a lot of work, a lot of responsibility, and oftentimes goes unnoticed and maybe, you know, unrecognized or thanked. But all of our classmates, I guarantee you, if I had the opportunity, would say thank you so much for your, your work, uh, your dedication, and what you've done for the organization. And uh, you've motivated and inspired me. I just want to let you know how much I love and respect you. And I thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Bob. I, I love and respect you too. And as usual, you are generous and kind, um, and I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to having dinner together when you're in New York next. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Well, I look forward to it, my friend. Likewise. Blessings, my friend. Blessings. Take care. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to Basel for investing his time to share with our listeners his story and learnings from his journey. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite pods. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That's always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we look forward to spending time with you once again next week.